0: Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today. We're in the middle of a series called Killing Me, and we think it's going to be a blessing to you. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read that and then uh, we can pray and then dig in. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 13. We'll we'll really just focus on the first two verses, but I want to read up to 13 so we have a sense of context here. Okay, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but, re- but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees out of joint, but rather be healed. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray together real quick. Father, as we bow our hearts now before you, we ask that you would speak. We need to hear your voice, Lord Jesus. And so move everything else out of the way, and we pray that we would see Jesus. Open our heart, open our eyes to see Jesus. And so, Father, by your mercy, may your people hear a better sermon than I could ever preach. And I, I ask this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, When I was growing up, I would see this poem everywhere, especially framed as a poster in somebody's basement. Or I actually had it when I first came to know the Lord as a, as a little uh, card in my wallet that I carried around. And the poem was called uh, Footprints in the Sand. Anybody familiar with it or you, you have it with you right now? <laughs> um, the poem, if you don't know what it is, the poem is a person who has a dream. Uh, the, dreaming of two sets of footprints in the sand. One belongs to the dreamer and the other to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, the dreamer notices there's only one set of footprints during times of trouble, and he thought the Lord abandoned him. And so Jesus answered him, my precious child... I love you and will never leave you, never ever, during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. That's really sweet. And there's, it's true. It's just truth to that. But I guess somebody got annoyed with that poem. Um, or they just decided to have some fun with it. Or they felt like we that didn't really... They got annoyed because it, maybe they felt like we need to really get our act together. And, and so he or she, I don't, we don't know who wrote this, wrote a follow-up poem to The Footprints in the Sand. And it's called, Butt Prints in the Sand. <laughs> and it goes like this. One night I had a wondrous dream, one set of footprints that was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord. But mine were not along the shore. But then some strange prints appeared, And I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. (laughs) My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed and you would not grow. The walk of faith you would not know. So I got tired, I got fed up, and there I dropped you on your butt. Because in life, there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand, or leave their butt prints in the sand. Yeah. It's a bit cheeky. Sorry, pun intended. Um, but but I, I get the feeling, right? Like, sometimes it feels like that. Has the Lord dropped us all on our behinds? Has, does Jesus just get tired of us, fed up. Maybe we feel like that. Like sometimes he's just up there and looking at his angel Gabriel and he's just like, why did I save Robin again? You know, does he do that? Maybe your struggles in life, maybe that, that, that chronic sickness, all those years of praying, that you've been crying out to the Lord for that that wayward relative that they're not, still not saved or unchanged, and you, maybe you're fighting that same habitual sin, that, that same prayers that just does not seem to be answered, the same difficult issues in marriage and parenting. And, and why do some people go through things unimaginable and others don't? Why do some trials never seem to end? Uh, I don't have any answers, easy answers at all. And I, we're not going to be able to look at all the difficulties we could, we all go through. But according to the passage this morning, there's something we can kind of hold on to. That when we experience adversity, though we don't understand it all, according to this passage in Hebrews 12, that we can at least in part see it, that in the pain, that there's a God's process of training. Training of making us what he wants us to be. And that's what's called the discipline of the Lord, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. This is the last message, like I said, in our series, Killing Me. We looked over the weeks, many, many different word pictures of growing intimacy and intensity of how God wants to relate to us as we grow and wants us to grow. And we saw that uh, we need to see him as powder and clay. That's how it started. And then last week, the deepest intimacy of it all, the relationship of it all, husband and wife. Now, interspersed throughout the series, we saw that this growth that God desires for us does not happen without struggle. And so the book of Hebrews, unknown author, don't know who actually wrote it, but was originally written to, the Jew, to Jews who became Christians. But as they came to know the Lord, they, got, they started to get persecuted. And they, some of them decided maybe we should just go back to Judaism where it was easier. And so these are people that have been beaten down with difficulties, troubles, and suffering, and some of them are ready to give up. And so really Hebrews is one intense letter on public pastoral counseling. That's what it is. The writer wants his readers to understand how do you become the kind of people who can cope with life, especially with the brutal realities of life. And so the image I want to look at this morning from Hebrews 12 is the, the author gives us as one of an athlete and a race, and maybe that'll help us put some vocabulary to understanding why we go through some stuff that we do. So let's look at three things here real quickly. First, let's look at the marathon of life, the marathon of life. And uh, several things about the marathon of life uh, here from this text, first of all, it's a regimen of difficulties. Look how it starts. It says uh, in verse 1, towards the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The the word literally is, the author says, let us run the agon. Agon is where we get the word. Agony. Agony. Before the Olympics, there were what's called the Pan-Hellenic Games. That's what he's referring to here. It started with a long foot race, and then there would be other sports involved like wrestling and even boxing. So that's why later he talks about lame feet. He's talking about the foot race. When he says drooping hands, he's talking about boxing. right? And the reality is these folks have given up. Their, their hands are drooping. They stopped fighting. They, they're not in the race Anymore. And so, and then he uses the word run in the present tense, which means keep on running. And then he says, with endurance. The point isn't speed, the point is stamina. Keep on running. Uh, the word endurance, un, to remain under the challenge, remain under the difficulty, and remain under the struggle. The idea is remain <laughs> Under. The, the point he's making is that the Christian life, is, it's not a stroll or a sprint. It's a long, agonizing marathon. And it's a regimen of difficulties. And God's call is not to give up. Now, second thing about this life as a marathon is that life's difficulties are God's training ground. Do you notice nine times? Right, look at these verses here. Um, we'll we'll put them up. Look at nine times he uses the word discipline. He uses the family language of son and children and father repeated over and over again. And now when you hear the word discipline, maybe for some of us it leaves a bitter taste in our in our in our mouth because it it, it reminds you of people who used authority, who had authority and used and abused it. And so now when you think of it, that's all you think of. But the word "discipline just means training it 's to mold and shape you it 's formative education done by god by God for his kids, child training right? to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior right to mold you, to shape you it 's the way God grows all his kids now we have to be clear, I want to clarify the difference between God's discipline and God's judgment, and, or we should say punishment, right? That's a, there's a difference there between the two. So if you can look at, look at the screen there, you could see a lot of, there's, there's two different things that's going on. God's punishment happened, if you are in Jesus Christ, God's punishment happened to you when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it's not punishment anymore. God cannot punish you or charge you for the same crime that's already been uh, cleared. Right? So God's punishment has, is about wrath against sin. God's discipline is love for His child. One God is judge; the other God is Father. One is actual punishment. This is uh, Pastor Doug helped me with this. One is actual punishment; the other one feels like punishment, but it's not actual punishment. One is aimed at justice; the other is aimed at restoration. One was, is done in the past, it's happened on the cross, we, we accept Christ and we're forgiven. The other, it's, not, it's for the future, it's training for the future. One has to do with rejection, the other has to do with refinement. Right. Did you notice here in, in chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why does he put that in there? Do you know that for 2,000 years, Israel's priests offered sacrifices for sin? And then when you read through like Leviticus and you know, all the chapters that uh, kinda, uh, we get hung up on during Bible reading plan, right? <laughs> those chapters where it talks about the candlesticks and the altar and the robes, and you're like, what is the purpose of this? Right? Curtains and tables and the temple. But did you notice there's never a chair mentioned? Why? Because they, the priests never sat down. Because the work was never done. But So the author here says, what is Jesus doing? Sitting, right? Because the work is done. The great high priest offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. No other sacrifice is needed, so he sat down. His posture signals that the work was done. So we can rest in his finished work and not offer additional sacrifices for our sin, Jesus has already been punished for our sin. So God's not trying to pay you back. He's trying to bring you back. So one pastor says this, believers suffer consequences for their sin, and sometimes God uses those consequences to discipline them, but they never suffer punishment because Jesus was punished fully in our place. So all that is left is mercy. God is molding your character in love, not punishing you in judgment. So God's love, loved ones, is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. So how does he perfect us? Well, look at the word trained in verse 11. Uh, this is the key, one of the key verses here to the whole thing. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, not to everybody, but to those who have been trained by it. The word trained is the word we get, gymnasium. This is why I said it's training. It's meant to undergo a regimen of exercises deliberately aimed at strengthening weak parts of your body. That's what happens in a gym. And further enhancing the strong ones. And that involves pain. God's surgeries are without anesthetics. While his children are wide awake. Now, I don't like exercise, you can tell. But I do know this. Every person who's trained for anything in a gym feels pain. There's pain in training. You put stress on your body to create muscle. We're not automatically trained just by suffering. The author is assuming you are leaning into with the Lord with your pain. And he takes and uses suffering, uses pain. Just like the flavor of the tea comes out best in hot water, who you are comes out in your pain. So as you lean in and as you're struggling, you realize, man, my faith, and I can tell you right now, my faith did not grow. It only grew because of the times I've been tested. Right? My, your commitment will never grow unless it's threatened. Your patience will never grow unless it's taxed. Your compassion will never grow unless it's tapped. Our courage will never grow unless it's challenged. How will you know? How will you receive confidence that your faith is real? That God will never let you go? That Jesus is everything he says he is? And that he loves you? How will you know that? Nobody learns it from being told. You learn it from being shown. And life and God and struggle and pain. God shows you that through the crucible of trials and pain. Uh, using you know, Peter uses the imagery in First Peter, the, the idea of the fire and the gold and the fire, the hotter the fire, the purer the gold. The hotter the fire, the more valuable the gold. And God sits there in that image in First Peter, you can read it later, but God sits there as a goldsmith, he allows sufferings to fire test our faith. So our selfishness starts to float to the top. Our self-serving attitudes start to skim off. Our sense of entitlement starts to wear off. We are humbled. Our pride starts to break, killing me. This is the point, right? Our attachment to worldly things start to loosen. The fire reveals what we really love. And that's where sin and flesh can die. Otherwise, we end up as immature, foolish, and flabby believers. God loves you as you are, yes, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. Amen. So it's a regimen of difficulty. It's his training ground. And thank the Lord. There's one more point under this, is that God sets the course. God sets the course. Notice, run the race that is set before us. He set it. You're not setting it. God is a sovereign one who sets the course. So God's allowed the trials, the difficulties to come as part of his loving training. Now, we may not like parts of the course, Right, we may we may be prone to grumble like, "Why do I have to go over this hill right now? Why am I in this valley?" As our sister shared, "Why am I going through this swamp?" And you might be tempted to look over at somebody else's course that they're putting on social media, some Instagrammed life. That's dangerous because it seems like sunsets and roses, and you have no idea what their course is like. God sets your course, and what's hard about all of this is that we don't have control then. God sets it. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor has this great quote. Uh, She says this, I've lost control. This is what people say when bad things happen to them. I've lost control of my life. I've I've said that myself, but it's not true. Human beings do not lose control of their lives. I love this. What we lose is the illusion that we were ever in control of our lives in the first place. That's truth. We do not lose control of our lives, but the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. Our struggles don't make us weak. It exposes the weaknesses that have been there all along. It exposes the delusion of our sovereignty and thinking that we are God and we have control, and we do not. And the good news, loved ones, is yes, I am weak. Pastor Jim Jim Cimbala says... God is attracted to weakness, right? God is attracted to weakness. And the author of Hebrews says, God's not sending needless drills and tests for fun. We might not understand it. I mean, there are so many things, guys. I can't, I don't understand why I had to go through that. I really don't understand. But just because I can't think of a reason doesn't mean God has, doesn't have any reason. So when the difficulties of life are overwhelming you, and the, with troubles and tragedies overwhelming you, you feel like everything's out of control. Just because that's not your plan, does not mean there's no plan. God's setting the course. It's a marathon of life, regiment of difficulties, orchestrated by God. It's fatherly training, not to punish us, but to transform us through the difficulties. So that's that's the case. Then, secondly, how do you run? How do I run this? How do I? What do I? Do? Well, we can't change aspects of the course. We can't change how long the course is. We can change how we run, and that's what the author here uh, tells us in verse uh, one. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin. Hey, by the way, did you notice the us? This is all done in community. This is not done. A uh, solo. We're surrounded. Let us lay aside. Let us run right through friendship and time and share tears. In community is how we run. But the point here, he says, is we must cast off anything that keeps us from running. But notice he doesn't just say sin. Do you see that? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely. Wait a minute. One is sin. The other is weight. It can refer to physical weight, unnecessary baggage that's going to slow the runner down or drain their energy. The idea of sin clinging so closely is the idea of having a rope tied around your legs as you run. Sin starts off as cobwebs that turn into cables, as one author says, and then they become too... Initially, they're too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. But... Picture the start of a marathon, right? you, don't, you don't show up wearing a huge winter coat, all-weather pants, hiking boots, and a 50-pound pack, right? That guy uh, does not stand a chance of finishing <laughs> because you look at him and you say, you need to lay aside that weight, right? Weight and sin are two different things here. What he's saying is, on the one hand, yes, we have sins, entangling sins, sins that keep tripping us up, but we also have weights. What's the difference? Weights are not sin in themselves, but they also keep you from running. So a lot of times when we are overwhelmed with life and we stop running, we lay down on the track and we stop running and others of us are full of anxiety and bitterness because we are, it's out of, out of control, the illusion, right? And so it comes out as anger, over-functioning. But underneath all that anger is often fear and sadness, and so we try to cope by running after even good things, weights. They're weights. So what he's saying is, it's not enough to say, yes, I avoided porn on the Internet today. While you just binge watched Netflix, or you spent hours on social media, or fantasy sports, or video games, or online shopping, or food, or stocks, or, or sleeping, these things that we do to self soothe, these numbing distractions, especially when because of pain and being overwhelmed with life, uh, Pastor John Piper says the race of the Christian life then is not fought well or run well by asking what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that. That's not the question. The question is, is this thing, even good things, in the way of greater faith, greater love, greater purity, greater courage, greater humility, greater patience, greater self control? So it's not, is it wrong? The question you should be asking is, does it help me run? Does it help me run the race? Does it help me run after Jesus? Does this person I am dating? Help me run towards Jesus. Again, a wonderful person. But is it at the wrong time? If it's at the wrong time, it becomes a weight. And I can't tell you what your weights are. That's something you have to self-evaluate here. Are there things right now hindering you from running that you've allowed in your life because of the pain and the adversity and all of that that you've allowed, these things because you need to cope? And soothe yourself. What the Lord is inviting you is there, right there, uh, to a place of surrender. These, these sins and weights are kisses that are killing you. And God says, no, I'm going to address that as a wound, because God's wounds are what cures us while sin's kisses kill us. So we got to cast off some things to run. But then now, lastly, how, what's my motivation, Right? How do I then keep going? Okay, these are the things I, God's pointing to, the Spirit of God's pointing to, but how do I keep going? How, what's going to help me keep going Thursday, <laughs> right? This week, what's going to So he gives us three motivations, okay? We'll, we'll end with that. Three motivations. The author, author gives us th- uh, more motivations to keep running. By the way, he's, he's talking to those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You're, those are the runners, so if you haven't done that, then you're not even in the race. You're just on the sideline. So uh, the call is to join him and to know him, and, to, and, to, and he throws you into this, into this race of life. All right, three motivations. First, he says, look back. Look back. Notice how it starts. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Uh, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is therefore there for? And so that's Bible joke, right? So you need to go back to chapter 11 is what he's talking about. Uh, the, it's called the Hall of Faith, a list of all these believers who went before us. Now, when I was young, this passage of being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, so I was taught that it's this idea that we're in a big stadium, and then all the Old Testament saints like Moses and David and Noah and all our loved ones in the Lord— are watching us, and they're like, cheering us on. And, and, and then we should pray to them. This is from my upbringing. There is not a, a shred of evidence anywhere on the pages of the Bible that people in heaven are preoccupied with watching what's, what's going on here. Yeah. Right? The idea is not that we're, they're watching us, it's an, but it's an encouragement to watch them. You see the difference? Right? It's not they're watching us, it's we should watch them. Go back to what, the way they ran the race. And you can go back to chapter 11. And as you read through all of them, all kinds of difficulties, they all testify to you. It can be done. All kinds of crazy stories. We don't have time to go into all the things in chapter 11 that he mentions. Look back. Look at all those who've gone before you. It's, and they're all telling you it can be done. That's a motivation. Look back. Secondly, look up. Look up. Look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus. See the word look? It's the sense of distracting one's attention or directing one's attention without distraction. Looking away from all others towards one. It's not a glance. It's a gaze. Not a glance on Sunday. A gaze for life. A gaze to put everything on. To put your whole weight and trust in. In. Look at him. And he says the word Jesus. He doesn't say Christ, says Jesus. That's his human name. It refers to his compassion that he is in this with you. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the idea is author of faith. He's the reason you have any faith at all. He decided to save you. Before the foundation of the world, he loved you. And at the right time, he saved you and put you in this race. So then that only leads to one logical conclusion. He's not only the author. He is the perfecter, the finisher. He's he's going to finish what he started. That's your motivation. He always finishes what he starts. And if he's the author and finisher, he's also in the middle. I love these lyrics from Maverick City. God of my present, God of my future, you write my story, you hold it all together. You are the alpha and you are the omega. You're in the middle. You hold it all together. So looking back, looking up, one last motivation, he says, look ahead. Look ahead. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus knew that through the, though the process was hard, the journey was taxing, the end of his race, there was joy. Right? Joy. It says joy. Well, joy by what joy about right. what, what? What joy does he get? Joy in bringing glory to the Father? Absolutely. Joy in finishing his high priestly work that we mentioned earlier that he came to do? Absolutely. But there's something else wrapped up in his joy. That's you and me. In his race, he endures. And he runs. But at the end, he climbs a hill. And instead of stripping himself of the weight of sin, he willingly takes it on himself. So you and I would never have to carry it. He disregards the disgrace he would experience. He runs that race and he triumphs Uh, rising again after the third day, and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And notice uh, in Hebrews 11 is, remember Moses, remember David, and remember everybody. But here it doesn't say remember Jesus. It says look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And Jesus got us at the end of his race. We will get him at the end of ours. He sets us as his joy when he ran. Man, that is my greatest motivation, that he thought of me as he ran. Nothing stopped him. So now I will set him as my joy as I run. Because life is this long, difficult marathon, so then what? how do you run this race? You take a step. Rather than praying for some dramatic moment that God can use, some amazing resolution. We have to see the character of life. It's not set in two or three dramatic moments, but let me tell you, 10,000 little moments. This race takes steps. The character that's formed in the little moments is what's going to shape you, uh, how you respond to the big moments of life. So what's going to change? What's going to help you run this long race? 10,000 moments of personal insight and conviction. 10,000 moments of humble submission. 10,000 moments of foolishness exposed, wisdom gained. 10,000 moments of sin confessed, repented and rejoiced in Christ, sin forsaken. 10,000 moments of courageous faith. 10,000 choice moments, points of obedience. 10,000 times of forsaking the kingdom of self and running towards the kingdom of God. 10,000 moments where you abandon worship of the creation and give yourself to the worship of the creator. And what's going to make that possible? It's relentless, transforming little moment grace, and putting your weight on it means step by step, moment by moment trust. Steps turn into miles, which turn into years, which turns into a legacy. And what's involved in every step? Please do not miss this: looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus. What, What does that mean? Uh, this past Easter, I was thinking about Mary Magdalene in John 20. Do you remember her in John 20? Uh, she's forgotten God's word. She's looking for a dead body. This is Easter, right? She's looking high and low for Jesus. She almost gets into a fight with the gardener because she, she thinks someone, right, like she, she's confused, she's weeping, she's lost, she's broken. Uh, very loving and passionate, relentless and fearless woman, She's really blind to spiritual reality. And interestingly, in that section, like, she sees angels. (laughs) She sees angels, but she she doesn't realize it. Blinded by her tears. Angels in front of her. And Jesus says in John 20, he says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Right? Supposing him to be the gardener. (laughs) This is the fight. Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus says to her, Mary. She thinks she's in the middle of a disaster. She's fallen down on the race. And there Jesus meets her. She doesn't even realize it. Jesus himself is breathing down her neck, and she feels alone. She's about to be made one of the most famous people in all of the world, in history. And she feels devastated, abandoned, (laughs) fallen down in her race. And if we, when she finally takes the talks to the Lord, she, she, she doesn't know. Like I, I want to look at her and say, Mary, what, how, be careful how you're making sense of your life right now. <laughs> what looks like disaster, my dear sister, is a grace. What looks like the end, Mary, is the beginning. What looks like hopelessness is God's instrument to give you real lasting hope. And I love this interaction. He says, Mary. And that's all she needed to recognize him. That's looking to Jesus right there. It's not really looking to Jesus. It's realizing that he's already seen you. And he sees you. She's running around saying, I don't know where he is. And Jesus says, but I know where you are. She's crying, I can't see him. And he says, I see you. He doesn't, why doesn't he even say, hey, It's me. Instead, he's looking at her, and he says, it's you. It's you. There's there's an old song that goes, you're nobody until someone loves you. And all of us nobodies are trying to get other nobodies to love us, and it's exhausting and heartbreaking. But look here, the only somebody in the world loves a nobody and his love makes her somebody. She so had nothing to offer him. And he comes back and he's acting like there's nobody in the world except her. That's how he treats her. It's this kind of love that keeps you running the race of life. So, would you surrender to that love that's chasing you and finding you in your pain and seeking you in your tears? Loved ones, you don't come to Jesus. Because he gives you a better life, you come to Jesus because he's better than life itself. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We hope that today's message was a blessing to you. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org.